are listening to episode 16 of Owner's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 35, Diurnia Orbital, December 29, 2372. The smell of bacon woke me and I sat up with a start, horrified that I'd slept through the night and somebody was already fixing breakfast. My sense of duty stabbed me until I saw the chrono and realized it was only 17.30. I levered myself out of the bunk and, after a brief foray into the head for some cold water on my face and a check of the plumbing, stumbled onto the mess deck to find Ms. Maloney at the stovetop, a skillet on the burner and a pair of tongs in one hand. She looked up and smiled when she saw me. Hello, Captain. You got a nap? I nodded, still a bit muzzy. Yes, thank you, Miss Maloney, I did. I also got us a small cargo just before I passed out. She waved the tongs at the stove. I hope you don't mind, sir. I wasn't sure if you'd be getting up. Oh, no, Miss Maloney, not at all. I applaud your initiative. Anytime you want to cook, please help yourself. Thank you, Captain. I wasn't really sure if this was off limits or not. I drew off a mug of coffee and sipped to clear some of the muck out of my mouth. We're running a bit more haphazardly than I'd like, Ms. Maloney. Not only are we starting with a ship that's been mostly stripped of anything not nailed down, we have no base of standing orders, a very small crew, and a deadline. From my seat, it looks like you're doing pretty well for a company that didn't exist, even in theory, two weeks ago, Captain. She flipped the bacon. You've raised nearly 40 million credits on the strength of some promised prize money and your dashing good looks, purchased a ship, and founded a shipping line. She shrugged and smiled at me. That seems pretty good to me. Well, when you put it that way, Ms. Maloney, how else can you put it, Captain? I credit Kirsten Kingsley for being the architect. Ms. Maloney shook her head, a thoughtful frown on her face. Instigator, perhaps. Certainly a key player. She shook her head again. No, although I'd go along with William Simpson as architect. I thought about how he brought the pieces together and had all the paperwork, if not covered, then at least lined up for me. I can see that. Any idea why? Personally, I'd finger Veronica Dalmati for that, Captain. She's been chairman of the board longer than I've been alive. She's also taken Kirsten Kingsley under her wing as an unofficial protege, I think, and William Simpson is her main squeeze these days. So when your father died, Kirsten went to Ms. Dalmati, and between them they hatched up this scheme to set me up in business so that I'd be able to hire you as a quarter share? Ms. Maloney frowned into the skillet for a few heartbeats and then shook her head. No, that doesn't work. It's not Kirsten's style. She looked over at me. But it fits Veronica Dalmati to a T, and the orderly transfer of power falls directly under her thumb. I looked at her then, suddenly hit with an odd thought. What is it, Captain? She eyed me with a small grin. You're looking at me with the strangest expression. Sorry, Ms. Maloney. I shrugged an apology and tried to clear my face. I was just trying to place you in this. My understanding is you're not really part of the company. Correct. Papa kept me out of the business for the most part. I have to think that had I been a son, he'd have had me out there working the docks as soon as I could walk. Why didn't he? Mother, perhaps. She had some rather silly ideas. Not silly. How do I put this? Arcane? Dated? Stupid? She grinned at me. You get the idea. She thought that ladies, and that's what rich women are, don't you know? Ladies? So ladies don't work on the docks, or anywhere else, for that matter. Very gauche, very nouveau, just wasn't done. That's unfortunate. She gave a little sideways dance of her head. Maybe yes, maybe no. I got a different education, certainly, than a brother would have gotten, and I think the mold was made before he realized I wouldn't have a brother. 
She pulled the bacon out of the skillet and laid it on a wire rack to drip a little while she tossed a handful of slivered onions into the pan drippings, filling the mess deck with the heavenly aroma of sautéed onion. By the time I was ten, I was already on a path of boarding schools and private academies. I spent most of my youth somewhere other than Diurnia, so by the time I got back here around 62, 63, Papa didn't know what to do with me, but having me hanging around the office wasn't something that appealed to either of us. She grabbed the handle on the skillet and expertly shook and flipped the onions, keeping everything, including the hot drippings, inside. She reduced the heat a bit, scraped a cutting board full of diced potatoes onto the onions, and gave the pan another little shake to settle them. So why the codicil? She grinned. He never said, but I think that was a thumb in Mother's eye. He added it right after the split with Genji. Before that, I don't really know what he was thinking, but he set it up as a kind of rite of passage, maybe. I considered it. It makes a certain amount of sense. If you stepped into the CEO's shoes without any credibility on the docks, that could be rough. And being a woman, she asked it flatly, without a lot of heat behind it. Actually, I don't think that would matter that much. A good number of the captains are women. Many of the engineering officers are women as well. Chairman of the board is a woman. No, I think you characterized it pretty well when you said your mother's ideas were dated. She gave me a skeptical look. Okay, for some of them it might be an issue, but I still think the credibility is a bigger problem. It's hard to trust somebody you don't know, and what little they do know about you is from the society pages and gossip sheets. She shook the pan again and threw a pinch of salt on top, granting a generous helping of black pepper. The aroma drove me crazy, and it took a few heartbeats to notice she regarded me out of the corner of her eyes. How much did you know about me, Captain? I didn't even know you existed. Miss Arione recognized your name, and my face, apparently, she said dryly. <laughs> that, too. How are you two getting along? Miss Maloney chuckled at that. She's a bit intense, I guess is the word. Oh, yes, she is that. She was a bit hesitant at first, but I think she's decided I'm neither a threat nor a snoot. I'm not exactly her idea of big sister material. I think she's a little off-kilter because of the discrepancy between age and rank. She shrugged. I think if we can get beyond the initial ice-breaking stages, we're going to have a lot of fun. She turned a wicked grin in my direction. The look gave me serious trepidation. How long has Chief Bailey been your bodyguard? She smiled. Five or six stanyards now. Is he any good at it? She shrugged. I'm still here, never been mugged. Had a few run-ins with folks that thought a young woman at her gramps would be easy marks, but they always left with more respect for their elders. She flipped the potatoes again and put a lint on the pan before turning back to me. How is he as an engineer? He seems to know his stuff all right. A bit distracted at times, and he tested me a little in the beginning, but we've reached an understanding, I think. What gave him away? You. She looked surprised. Me, Captain? How did I give him away? You came without a bodyguard. I don't understand it, but that seems to be the moral equivalent of going out without your pants around here. Well, ship owners, business people, anybody with a lot of money, they're targets. Corporate ransom is a game for some of these companies, and just because we're on Diurnia doesn't mean we're immune. She nodded her head at me. You're a target, too, and the news about the Chernyakova is going to make it worse. How did my coming without a bodyguard give him away? Didn't seem right. Not only didn't you come with one, you didn't ask for one, even while we were discussing security. I figured you must, therefore, have one, and the only other person aboard was Chief Bailey. Impeccable logic, Captain. Thanks. He also gave it away at Overeasy the other morning, during that blow-up with the picture. He was far too into his situational awareness to be really the kind of bumbling old fogey engineer he pretends to be. 
Oh, he's not pretending, Captain. Trust me, he really is a bumbling old fogey engineer. She smiled to take the sting out of the criticism. But he's a dear, and he's very street smart. He makes up for lack of speed and strength with stamina and treachery. I snickered. I think I know the type. You can run away from him, but you can't run far enough. Exactly. Will he be joining us for dinner? I've been here a quarter stand now, and no coffee run. She grinned at me. You've got only yourself to blame for that, Captain. You serve a dine-fine cup in your establishment. She pulled the lid off the skillet and crumbled the now-cool bacon onto the top. A few quick flips of her wrist and a half-dozen eggs lay on top of the potato, onion, and bacon mixture. She slipped it into the broiler next to the stovetop and left the door cracked a bit so she could peek in. I told him I'd stay aboard and he took advantage of the opportunity to go out for a pint or three. He'll be back later tonight. You look like you've done this before, Miss Maloney, I nodded at the broiler. She smiled at me and peeked in at the pan. A few, she admitted. She pulled the door open and, using a side towel as potholder, snagged the skillet out of the heat and tossed some crumbled blue cheese on top. I couldn't help but notice how nicely the eggs had set up but hadn't yet cooked through. She thrust it back under the heat and closed the door almost shut again. She saw me watching and arched an eyebrow. Don't you have another cargo to find, Captain? She smiled, and I noticed the corner of her eyes crinkled just a little bit. Oh, yes. I felt my face flush. I'd completely forgotten it. A tick later, and the cargo query, refined for cargoes under five tons and restricted to those bound for Welliver, ranked down the screen. I sat with my eyes glued to the screen while she rummaged about in the galley behind me. I had to admit, she seemed perfectly at home there. She was not at all the woman I had expected after our brief introduction at dinner. As much as I hated to, I had to admit that my preconceived notions colored my impression, and I'd done her a disservice. Behind me, I could hear her working, but I didn't dare take my eyes off the screen or my finger off the trigger, as it were. There were a few cargoes that might be suitable to fill the hole in the cargo deck, but I was still hoping for something with a little more profit behind it. Without passengers, I'd need as much edge as I could get to cover the cost of the run. In relatively short order, she placed a hot pad on the center of the table and topped it with a skillet. She put a small bowl of salad beside it and added a measuring cup with dressing. She slipped the plate and some flatware onto the table at my elbow, and I saw her seat herself beside me where she could watch the screen. May I serve you, Captain? I glanced over, and she had a serving spoon ready to dish out some of the broiled eggs, bacon, and potatoes. Please, Miss Maloney, that would be most helpful. Any idea how you're going to eat like that, Captain? There was a suspicion of humor in her voice. Not a clue, I admitted, just as a three-ton cargo with a near-term priority popped to the top of the list. I snapped the book command and waited while the system worked. I missed. I shrugged and kept my eye on the screen, but my attention on dinner. It was delicious. She'd sprinkled a bit of basil across the top of the finished egg dish, and the salad made a deliciously chilled counterpoint to the rich, smoky flavor of the bacon-laced potatoes. In between bites, I placed a hand on the book button while I chewed. Conversation, quite understandably, lagged. Will it matter whose finger is on the button, Captain? She asked after a few ticks. No, Miss Maloney, why? I could do that if you want to finish your dinner. I glanced over at the teasing tone and realized that her plate was clean while mine looked stirred about but barely eaten. I snickered and placed my tablet between us where she could reach it easily. Use the arrow to select and press the button to book it. I'll let you know which ones. I picked up a fork and began doing some serious damage to dinner while my eyes stayed glued to the screen. I had to keep looking down to fill the fork, and on one of those instances I looked back up to find a very high cargo value right at the top of the list, 400 cubic meters massing 800 metric tons with a high priority rating. 
Before I could react, the screen went dark, and when it came back, the cargo was ours. Thank you, Miss Maloney. I turned to look at her. I couldn't speak fast enough. I saw it come up and had it selected, Captain. When you opened your mouth, that was the only really viable cargo up there. She shrugged. I hid it. You did well. I took the tablet and shut it off. That's about half our hold capacity and nothing close to our mass limit. It should be a very fast trip. Chapter 36, Diurnia Orbital, December 30, 2372. When the grav trucks arrived with the cargo, I began to appreciate why the ship had a reputation for being difficult to fill to capacity. I'd hoped to pick up half our rated mass, but with around 1,200 cubic meters of cargo space, I realized it would take a cargo of gold or perhaps uranium to fill it. As it was, the grav trucks wheeled up with what looked like a mountain of two-meter cargo cubes. The cargo wranglers began stacking them in the hold with blinding efficiency. The cubes had indents and dimples that let them lock together, and the cargo hold was precisely tall enough to allow the handlers to stack two of the big cubes, one on top of another. I had them stack the higher-density load against the outside bulkheads and the lighter-density one just inside, leaving the corridor down the middle that opened into engineering. It took the crew a bit more than a stand to wheel it in, stack it up, and lock it down. I told their crew chief how I wanted it done and then just stood back. With the ladder lowered out of the way for them, the four loaders looked more like twelve as they performed an intricate choreography. When they left, I went through and checked the tie-downs, making sure the cubes were locked to the deck. The heavy cubes filled most of the cargo hold, leaving only five meters of open space in the forward end. The lighter cubes stacked in a single-height row just in front of the heavier ones, giving me a relatively even distribution of mass down the length of the ship as well as side to side. I supposed I'd get used to planning the load distributions for the hold eventually, what I'd do with single cubes or short shipments, I had no idea. I also realized I needed to get passengers into the ship soon. While these cargoes had nice priorities, the total revenue for 700 metric tons wouldn't yield much in terms of share value. Ms. Arione watched the process from the upper deck and came down the ladder as soon as I put it back in place. She surveyed the load and smiled. Are we really rated for nine and a half metric kilotons, Skipper? That we are, Ms. Arione. This is going to be fast, isn't it, Sar? Yes, it is, Miss Arione. Shall we get on with it? She grinned and scampered back up the ladder as I sealed the lock in preparation for getting underway. I used the repaired console to log the action at 10.40. We'd be able to leave any time after 12.40. I kicked off a canned message to traffic control and orbital security, indicating that the log had been sealed in preparation for departure. It felt like maybe we were beginning to get a handle on things. I hated thinking that because I dreaded finding out just how wrong I probably was. As I trudged up the ladder with that depressing thought, I realized that there must be more to the ship than showed. Looking back at the cargo cubes gleaming in the dim light, I wondered how anybody could make a profit carrying so little cargo. When I got to the landing at the top and looked down the passageway, past the passenger compartments, I wondered if passengers would help enough. We could only carry ten at most. I sighed and headed for the cabin to work on my logbook for a few ticks before I reported to the galley to fix lunch. The logbook looked a bit sparse. I really needed to do a better job than the few statements about where we were, what we were doing, and outstanding issues. In the first place, I wasn't really sure the outstanding issues needed to be there, given that the log was a legal record of the ship's activities. Part of me believed that the awkwardness was due to trying to bootstrap the ship and inventing everything as we went along. At 1100, I went to the mess deck and tried to think of something nice to make for lunch. We'd be at navigation stations shortly after, so I didn't want to make anything too messy. 
Of course, the reality was that, for us, once we got pulled back and headed out, I could secure the navigation detail and ride out to the safety limit by myself. For that matter, I could probably trust the helm to Miss Arione. Running under power was not that much different from running under sail. So many things to think about, so little time. I found myself aching for the long, untrammeled hours of being in the deep dark so I could get my head together. I needed to start thinking and planning, acting instead of reacting. I rummaged in the pantry and chillers and came up with the fixins for Sloppy Joe's as a change from cold cuts and salad. Soup stock needed to wait until I could get some bones simmering, but there'd be time enough once we got the sails up and the watchstander merry-go-round started again. Ms. Maloney and Ms. Arione came up to the galley about 11.15 and helped me scramble up the ground meat and warm some buns. While Ms. Arione was mixing in some tomatoes and spices, I checked my astrogation solutions once more. It had been a long time since I'd done astrogation from scratch, and it needed to be as perfect as I could make it. We were on a tight delivery window for some of the cargo, and I didn't want to blow it on our first trip. When I ran the numbers again, they looked odd. Ms. Arione, Ms. Maloney... I need to run these astrogation numbers. I seem to have made an error. Can you two finish fixing lunch while I do that? They shared a look and a nod. Aye, aye, Captain, Miss Arione said with a smile. She gave me a jaunty wave of her wooden spoon. I ran up the ladder to the bridge and pulled up the astrogation worksheets, rechecking the defaults for the ship and then loading up our cargo. I saw the problem immediately in the detailed workup. I'd slipped a decimal point in the mass of the cargo. Dealing with both mass and volume was still new to me, and I made a mental note to double-check each time. The difficulty came from working for so long in fixed container sizes. A 15-metric kiloton can was a standard block. I knew what it massed. Irons had an open cargo bay, and I needed to be more careful when taking loads, because the available volume was finite and quite small compared to the rated power available. The cargo we had aboard, while slightly more than half filling the hold, massed something around one-tenth of our capacity of nine-and-a-half metric kilotons. We were running practically empty. With the sail size and load, the astrogation calculator gave us a six-day run out to the Burleson limit. The run into Wellover would be closer to seven because of the orbital's position relative to the system's primary. Just for fun, I checked to see how far we could go with that load and blinked when I realized that, from Diurnia, we could hit any other settled system in the quadrant in just one jump. I sat back in my seat and contemplated what that meant. In the Agamemnon, the trip from Diurnia to Greenfields would take several weeks, depending on jumps and stops. Following the normal navigation pass, it might have taken upwards of half a stanier. Jumping through the deep dark might make it only two months. Iris could make the same trip to Greenfields in just under 14 days. I began to get a better grasp on why these ships were called fast packets. I filed that information away for future use. In my desire to find a comfortable destination for our shakedown cruise, I'd limited my cargo choices to the systems I knew. I suspected we could do better, looking for cargoes that needed to go very far in very little time. A knot in my gut began to ease. I amended our flight plan with traffic control and went back to the galley to get some lunch. Ms. Arione smiled when I entered. Find it, Skipper. Yes, Miss Arione, I missed a decimal point. Messed up the numbers a bit. I walked over to the stovetop and smelled the mixture simmering there. This smells wonderful. Thanks, Skipper, but Miss Maloney helped. She nodded her head at the older woman. Thank you, Miss Maloney. I took another whiff and tried to place the spicy smell. What did you add? Cumin? Miss Maloney tilted her head in surprise. Good nose, Captain. Yes, just a bit. 
I glanced at the chrono and went to help toast buns for lunch. We'd need to move it along sharply if we were going to serve on time. You do realize that with only the four of us, we don't really need to toast a lot in advance, don't you, Captain? I looked at the bag in my hands, the pear in the toaster, and then the stack already toasted on a platter. I sighed and placed the bag gently back on the counter, making sure to reset the closure. Um, yes, that's probably enough, isn't it? She raised her eyebrows and nodded with an amused grin on her face. Sorry. I sought refuge in a mug of coffee. Ms. Arione rescued me by asking, So what's our timetable looking like, Skipper? Well, six days out to jump, seven on the other end. We'll be in well over orbital on the 12th, if all goes well. Will that be in time for the cargo, Sar? It will, Miss Arione. We should be about three days ahead of the closer one. I noticed Miss Maloney looking at me with an odd expression, like she was listening to something in her head or trying to retrieve a lost memory. Did you say six days to jump, Captain? She asked finally. Yes, Miss Maloney, we're overpowered and undermassed. This is going to be a quick trip. A smile began to break across her face. You weren't kidding about being two weeks from Wellover then. No, Miss Maloney, and I realized that we could just as easily jump to Greenfields in the same amount of time. She looked at me, a startled frown on her face. Greenfields, Captain? That's astonishing. I thought so too, Miss Maloney. Iris may not have much in the way of cargo hold, but she's got really long legs. A thoughtful look lowered across Miss Maloney's face as she turned and took the plate of buns to the table and grabbed a pair of tongs on the way by. Chief Bailey ambled onto the mess deck, mug hooked in his left hand and sniffing like a dog on a scent. Oh, my heavens, what's that wonderful smell? Is it food? Yes, of course it is. Is it lunch? Oh, yeah, I'm ready for that. I am indeed. He made for the coffee pot, and I stepped sharply aside to keep from getting trampled. Are we ready to get underway, Chief? He sipped his coffee and sighed extravagantly. Oh, aye, Cap. Got accelerators on standby. Fuse actors ready to power up. They are. He nodded several times. We're straining at the mooring, Cap. See if we ain't. Miss Arione caught my eye then with a nod to the chrono. Lunch mess, Captain? Absolutely, Miss Arione. That aroma is driving me mad. Let's eat. As we settled in, I couldn't help but consider all the members of my little crew. Miss Arione, as lead spacer, seemed to be doing very well. Miss Maloney contributed in ways I never would have expected out of a poor little rich kid being put upon by parental unreasonableness. Chief Bailey was the enigma, part engineman, part bodyguard, and I wasn't really sure what else. As much as I liked his irascible manner, I sometimes got the sense that it wasn't all in good fun for him. I gave an inward shrug. After having Chief Gearhart taking care of my ship, anybody else would suffer by comparison. I set it aside and gave the pile of bread, meat, and sauce on my plate full attention. Chapter 37, Diurnia System, January 2, 2373. Three days out of Diurnia, I relieved a sleepy-eyed Ms. Maloney at 0545, and we both adjourned to the galley for breakfast. I'd been up for half a stand already and had fresh coffee along with half a sheet of biscuits. I threw a little butter in the pan, whisked up some eggs, and raised an eyebrow holding the pan up. She blinked and sipped again before answering. Ham, onions, peppers, cheddar, please, Captain. I obliged and got the mixture set and folded before the chief shambled in. Ah, coffee. Cap, you do make the best coffee in the quadrant. Yes, you do. Thanks, Chief. What would you like in your omelet today? Just cheese, Cap. That'd be great. Just cheese. And thank you kindly. 
I slipped Ms. Maloney's breakfast onto a plate and handed it to her just as her toast popped. She grinned, collecting the plate and toast before settling at the table with a friendly nod toward Chief Bailey. Ms. Arione not joining us this morning, Cap. Sleeping in, is she? Not sure, Chief. She was up late last night, and this is her day off. He nodded and sipped, blinking a bit. Anything you need fixed today, Cap. Generator's doing good. Fuse actors purr like a cat. Yeah, they do. Might be I get some time today. I've got a list of broken switches and missing light panels. I'll send that to you in a bit. We also need to get the passenger compartments ready for habitation. I'll apply for my steward's endorsement when we hit Welliver. It would be nice if we could pick up a passenger or two and see how that works going back. Oh, I, Cap, can do. Send me your list and I'll get chipping away at him. I plated his omelet and handed it to him before throwing some onions, peppers, and a bit of ham in to make one for myself. Captain, what about the passenger cabins? Ms. Maloney asked when I sat down. We've got a few days to get those cleaned up and ready for habitation, Ms. Maloney. I've been just waiting for us to get the routine down before making it more complicated. Ms. Maloney had drawn first helm watch after getting underway. I sat with her for that whole watch and then did my own six behind it. She was fine after that and stood her own watches without a hitch. The accumulated stress from the previous two weeks, added to back-to-back watches, laid me out in my bunk for a solid ten stands. Ms. Maloney and Ms. Arione dealt with feeding themselves and the chief while I visited Dreamland. The progress pleased me. Is there any procedure you'd like us to follow, sir? Just clean them out and make them nice. When we get them cleaned up, we can see if they need painting before we provision them. What about the mattresses that are in there, sir? Toss them. Ms. Arione and I should have done that when we cleaned out crew quarters, but I was being stupidly single-minded. Okay, Captain. Thanks. I'm feeling a little antsy already, and maybe having a project to work on will help. Almost everybody out here has a hobby. If you don't mind doing it, I'd certainly be grateful, but don't push yourself. Try to get a nap sometime before you come back on watch at noon. Aye, aye, sir. She smiled. I suspect Miss Arione will be getting up in a bit. Perhaps the two of us can at least strip them down and get them ready for cleaning before I go back to bed. There's plenty of spare room down in the cargo bay. Just toss them down there and we'll bundle them up for disposal at Welliver. Aye, aye, sir. We can do that. When you get ready, miss, you let me know. I'll give you your hand, see if I don't. Between the three of us, I bet we can get them compartments right nice-looking before we hit port again. Right nice-looking. The chief nodded emphatically with each phrase. He turned to me. You got that punch list, Cap. I'm about done eating here, and I'll go track down the weevils. I nodded and pulled out my tablet. In seconds, he had the combined lists that Miss Arione and I had compiled. There you go, chief. Let me know if you have any issues or if there's something big and broken that we missed. He scanned the list and nodded. Oh, aye, Cap. He replied slowly, distracted by his reading. I'll do that. I'll just do that. I got to the end of my omelet and helped Miss Maloney put the galley back together while the chief muttered off down the passage. By 0645, I was back on the bridge and actually had a chance to sit and think. My logs were up to date. The last round of paperwork was done from our stay in Diurnia, and the bills all paid. I eyed my rapidly dwindling millions and wondered how it could disappear so fast. Almost all of it was gone to one-time charges for licensing and refurbishment charges, so while the startup costs staggered me, few of them would be repeated any time soon. Certainly not in the next 90 days. I sighed. I checked the consoles once more. The autopilot kept us on course like we were some fantastic bead on a very long wire. We had no waypoints for the watch, and the winds blew steadily with a smooth laminar flow. Back on the Agamemnon, Mr. Paul and I had studied the wind patterns above and below the plane of the ecliptic. I borrowed from every page of that book in setting our course to Welliver. 
Iris climbed up and out of the Diurnia system in a smooth, curving course that would take us about 30 degrees above the plane. Both of the system's gas giants were directly behind Diurnia's primary, and we had clear sailing. The chrono read 0700, and I pulled out my tablet to review the steward's endorsement for my master's license. I'd only just scratched the surface of it, but the further I went, the more my memories of taking the full share rating in steward division came back to help me along, and it went faster. At one point, the sound of feminine laughter echoed up the ladder, and I heard several whomping sounds that could have been mattresses falling from a height. There was more laughter and more whomps, so I just grinned and dug back into my reading. At ten hundred, I went down to the galley for a refill on my coffee and found Miserioni rinsing out cleaning rags in the deep sink. She greeted me brightly enough. Good morning, Skipper. Exciting watch? Stellar, Miserioni. Stellar. She groaned at the pun. Have you been cleaning the passenger compartments? Yes, sir. We've dragged all the old crusty bedding out and tossed it below. At the mention of the crustiness, she made a little disgusted face, which included sticking out her tongue and frowning alarmingly. Should we put them in hazmat isolation, Miss Arione? Vacuum would be best, I think, Skipper, but we can't very well just toss them. Or can we? She looked over at me with a hopeful expression. No, Miss Arione, we can't. She stamped her foot in pretend peak and then shrugged, returning to wash her rags. Well, Miss Maloney has gone to lay down for a bit before watch, but I think I'll work a bit more. She glanced at me. What's for lunch, by the way? Good question. I sipped my coffee and pondered an answer. Cold chicken and hot potato salad. Peas on the side. She didn't look too enthusiastic. I think I'd just as soon have cold cuts, sir. They're fast and easy, and you'll be making something for dinner, won't you? Yes, Miss Arione, I'm thinking of making a lasagna for dinner, garlic bread and green beans on the side. Now that sounds wonderful, sir. Thank you, Miss Arione. Now, if you'll excuse me, i better get back to the bridge. She grinned and waved her scrub brush. I topped off my coffee and headed for the ladder again. When I got up there and checked the screens, I walked around a bit, stretching my back and admiring the view out into the deep dark. Diurnia was a blue dot far astern, and the primary, a shimmering yellow pinhead off to our port quarter as the ship climbed. As I stood at the forward end of the bridge, there were only two or three meters of hull between the bridge and the bow. I stood there, rolling my shoulders and staring dumbly at the surface. It didn't look like other hull plating, but then this is the first Higby-built hull I'd been on, so the odd texture might have been something they did for dissipating heat. I stood there remembering the extra shielding that Miserioni and I had spotted on the schematics of the ship. I couldn't be sure, but I thought the basic pattern on the hull reminded me of that. Curious, I went aft and looked along the spine. The bridge didn't stick up very far, so my angle on the outer hull plates was tightly oblique. I couldn't see much, but it did seem to me that there were several sections of the plating that carried the same general shape as we'd seen in the diagram. I pulled out my tablet just as I heard steps on the ladder. Ms. Arione stuck her head up under the bridge. Skipper, there's almost six liters of that white paint left. Did you have any plans for it, sir? No, Ms. Arione. You thinking of painting one of the compartments white? Actually, sir, the chief and I figured we'd throw in a liter of that darker blue and give it a lighter shade than crew quarters and maybe paint the passage. Paint's cheap, Ms. Arione. Have at it. Thank you, Skipper. My pleasure, Miss Arione. Any time you want to use cheap materials and your own elbow grease in support of the ship, count on me to give permission. She laughed, but I wasn't sure she knew what she laughed at, and disappeared down the ladder with a little wave. I shook my head and took my seat. Having my own ship wasn't anything like I'd imagined. I'd wondered if we'd ever get the thing set up correctly so we could just focus on getting from here to there and back again. I suspected it would be a while before that happened. I dug back into the small craft steward endorsement. 
and focused on what we needed to do to get passengers aboard. There was a lot to it, but boiled down, it really was only common sense. Things that ships needed to do to keep paying customers from dying in the deep dark, either from the environment or from their fellow passengers, I rapidly got beyond the level of knowledge I remembered from my Messman exam and into the legalities of cartage, medical liability, and insurance coverages, or, more precisely, how to word a transportation contract that kept the passengers from suing your ship out from under you in the case of a hangnail. The more I read, the less interested I was in actually bringing strangers aboard, but my rational mind pointed out that it was too late, and I needed all the revenue I could get. Thanks for listening to Owner's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Music is Larry O'Gaff, a traditional tune performed by Ragtime Larry and Tom Joad and is used with permission of the artist. You can find this and other works by Ragtime Larry and Tom Joad on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Dorandas, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information about the book, the author, and the golden age of the Solar Clipper, visit www.solarclipper.com. <music>